Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Summer 2023. Americans are feeling footloose and mostly fancy-free these days, ready to bury their mask-free bare faces in a book they can't wait to read on those lazy, hazy days of vacation. As best-selling author Stephen King notes, books are uniquely portable magic. And on the move during the summer months, jammed into jean pockets, lining beach towels, stuffed into tote bags, and stacked up on vacation bedside tables, waiting to be plucked out for long, uninterrupted hours of reading. Summer readers are always ready, as someone once mused, to read good books in cozy little nooks. So UTR listeners get ready to hunker down among the pages of old classics or the latest bestsellers as three of our local librarians return with their curated lists from 2023's best offerings, from thrillers to young adult stories to romance and from literary fiction to science fiction. It's our annual summer reading special. Joining me in studio and remotely, first, Susanna, who is remote, Susanna Boristan-Tukach, Senior Librarian at the Cambridge Public Library. Hi, Susanna. Hi, it's great to be back. Great to have you. Also with me here in studio, Robin Brenner, Teen Librarian at the Public Library of Brookline. Welcome back, Robin. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. And Veronica Coven-Mattesee, Reader Services Librarian at the Boston Public Library. Hello, Veronica. Hi. Thank you so much for having us again. Well, I love this conversation. This is just, you know, my happy place. Um, I have to start, as we always do, with uh, just checking into our philosophy of summer reading and see if it's changed. And I want to remind you all what you said last year. So, Susanna, you said your philosophy Used to be you're taking in challenging reading, you know, particularly during those COVID winters, you wanted to, you know, do that. Then you wanted to also kick back and read what feels right. Then you turn to comfort reads. But you're saying, whatever, you're okay with it. And you're one of those people that will probably go back and forth. Robin, as you said, everyone loves comfort reads all the time. You're tackling slightly more complicated stories, um, love, good adventure, or romance, and um, you took the time to look at books that you knew you would have trouble getting into, and Summer gives you the space to tackle complicated or tougher topics. And Veronica, you said that you only read the stuff I really enjoy, but you read the books I actually own was your promise to yourself last summer that you'd bought over the last couple of months and the ones piled up. I said escapism all the time because I often have used the summer to dive into really complicated and deep books. And I think I'm back to a half and half situation this summer. I'll be doing some of that deep, complicated reading, but I just want some fun and, you know, really nonsensical. Well, not, maybe not nonsensical, but really easy <laughs> reading uh, to do as well. So now I'm going to go around and see for 2023, Veronica, where are you standing? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I think I've... I think I've recovered a little bit from the the pandemic trauma, and I'm and I'm branching out a little bit again into reading books that maybe aren't exactly the center of my comfort zone, um, but also 
the the more I'm involved in planning summer reading at the library, the more I I kind of as I'm planning start thinking about how I'm going to slot the stuff that I want to read into like the bingo card challenges, which is how we do summer reading at the Boston Public Library. So I think that also kind of guides my mentality. I am permanently an advocate for read whatever you want, read whatever is going to get you to read a book. There's nothing worse than, you know, stalling yourself out because you're like, I have to read this book, but I don't like it. If you don't like it, don't read it. Read something you love. Okay, very good. How about you, Robin? Um, I think I'm kind of half and half again in that I always look for comfort reads over the summer but I also do tackle some of the more complicated books um, I'm kind of famous for reading one or two adult books a year so sometimes <laughs> in the summer I'm like all right this is the time to read the 600 page adult book that I wouldn't otherwise have time to concentrate on and I do listen almost more than read at this point um, so reading um, and listening to the audiobooks that I can find is always the best I cannot do audiobooks, but that's another story. All right, Susanna, where are you? <laughs> yeah, so I'm kind of with you, Callie and Robin. I'm back to being 50-50 challenging reads and fluffier content. Um, but the important uh, characteristic of my summer reading vibe these days is to just have a lot of variety and keep it a little spicy. Um, and that goes in line with our summer reading challenge at Cambridge Public Library, which sort of encourages people to read outside of their comfort zones and explore new genres. So I'm trying to do that. Um, and also, there are a few peak publishing periods throughout the year, and June to July is one of those. So I'm also just trying to keep up with the new buzz books. Like we have books coming from Colson Whitehead this summer, Isabel Allende, and Patchett, and I'm just trying to keep those in my circulation as well. A fun fact that I discovered in preparation for this conversation was that the first recorded summer reading program took place in 1896 at Cleveland's Public Library, where head librarian Linda Eastman created a reading list and encouraged school children to get as far down the list as they could during the summer break. And as we know, a, a lot of summer reading is centered around um, lists for children, school children to keep up with and to engage in. But of course, that has broadened out for the rest of us who just want to indulge during the summer, and that's what we're doing here. But I thought it was a fun fact to know. And of course, librarians were all in the middle of it. Linda Eastman was starting all of this. So I want to start with you, Susanna. Tell me uh, one of your picks that you're excited about. Sure. Um, I'll start with King of the Armadillos by Wendy Chin Tanner. This comes out on July 25th. And it's a work of historical fiction uh, about a Chinese-American family in the 1950s. The book opens in 1954, several years after brothers Victor and Henry move with their father, Sam, from China to New York City, leaving behind their mother, Mei Wan, in China. And Victor's father, Sam, soon falls in love with a Russian-American woman named Ruth, who is kept a secret from the biological mother, Mei Wan, back in China. And this betrayal sort of starts to form some cracks in the family's foundation. Despite being historical fiction, it also explores some timely topics like anti-immigrant rhetoric, and policies and sort of the stigma of disease that is caused by a lack of knowledge. Well, what I'm interested in, uh, it sounds fabulous, um, is the, the fact that historical fiction has really taken off, it feels to me, in the last few years. And so this is right in the wheelhouse of a lot of people who are looking for interesting stories uh, set in real history with real events, but with 
fictional characters. It just gives you a whole other a feeling about it, particularly when it's well done. So yay for that. Okay, Robin, first choice for you. <laughs> All right. I'll go to a couple of a series of books that have come out um, that are all basically classics remixed. And I that's a trend that I've seen a lot in young adult lately, that there is a sense of taking a story that's well known and reinterpreting or reimagining it in a fairly dramatic way. And the ones I think of are Self-Made Boys by Anna Marie McElmore, um, which is a retelling of The Great Gatsby, and My Dear Henry, which is a retelling of Jekyll and Hyde. And Originally, when I heard about these, I wasn't so sure they'd be successful with teens because it's, you know, the kind of classics that teens are forced to read in school and are not super excited about usually. <laughs> um, but these are very smart retellings and they're doing a lot more to diversify the casts. And um, a lot of them are much more queer. Um, so there's kind of Great Gatsby was fascinating to see how they basically turned that on its head and gave everyone the happy ending you wish they had, mm. which is a surprise given the story. Um, and My Dear Henry, I like because it's that gothic Victorian sort of creeping horror story. Um, and you like horror. I do. Um, <laughs> and uh, But it, I liked the idea that they're all having a lot of fun with mm -hmm. really going in and digging into some very different topics. So it's they're not usually super heavy, but they, they will kind of, especially My Dear Henry is about two young um, black men in London in the 1890s. And that, of course, brings out a lot of both racism and homophobia, which would be accurate to the time. Mm -hmm. But um, but it's dealt with in a way that I think is centralized to the characters and the gothicness of the story. So here's a question. Do the teens know these are retellings? They do. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you start reading, so that sounds familiar. Then you go back to the original and have a different kind of appreciation for it. Yeah. yeah. These <laughs> ones are more clear that that's what they're doing yeah. instead of just kind of you reading along and being like, oh, wait a minute, this is his Girl Friday or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. But um, but yeah. yeah, they're well done. Okay. All right, Veronica. All right, I'm going to carry on the theme of the retelling. I didn't I didn't even think about this until Robin said something, but several of mine are actually retellings. Mm -hmm. um, this is an August release, so it's something to look forward to. But Kiss the Girl by Zareda Cordova. Mm -hmm. I have to stand up for romance every every year. It's one of my favorites. Me too. This is I think a really <laughs> perfect timely release because this is a little Little Mermaid retelling. Um, and also, you know, like not, not a Taylor Swift story, but like maybe a little bit Taylor Swifty. Um, the protagonist is the youngest of a seven sister girl band, um, who have been working together since, since she was a child. So like they've, they've been a child band and now they're, uh, she's the youngest and she's in her twenties. Um, and they've, they're finally wrapping up the band and they're all going to go off onto their own adventures, except then at the last minute, her father, who's the manager, says, and now you're going to be launching your solo career. And she says, wait, what? That No, we, we said I was we said I was taking a break. I don't want to do this. Um, and of course, fortuitously, just that night, she had had a meet cute with um, the lead singer of a band who's, you know, like just just breaking out, not not a not a famous band like hers. Um, and he, not knowing who she was, said, oh, you know, if you're not if you're not doing anything like our merch guy just just bailed on us. Do you want to come on the tour with us? You can you can be our merch girl. Mm -hmm. um, and she's thinking, y you know, I I've, I've got my own stuff going on. Maybe not. But then, you know, her father dumps this on her and she decides, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go on this road trip and be the merch girl. And no one knows who she is because she's always performed in a wig and makeup. Um, so it's this whole, you know, summer of self-discovery for her. They have 
you know, they can't be together because she agreed with his manager that, you know, she would go on this tour, but it wasn't a romantic thing and she wouldn't hook up with him. Um, and meanwhile, of course, you know, the the looming betrayal of him finding out that she's actually a super, super famous pop star that she hasn't told him about. Um, I thought it was so well done. It was, you know, just just a beautiful Little Mermaid retelling that was a, like a perfect a perfect romance. I was I was really surprised, actually. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Susanna Boristan Tukach of the Cambridge Public Library, Robin Brenner of the Public Library of Brookline, and Veronica Coven Mattisey of the Boston Public Library. We're continuing our annual hour long conversation about summer reading recommendations. I'll let you kick off, Robin. What's your next pick? Well, I can follow in what you were saying about um, band romances, which is a thing I also have a weakness for. Um, there's something about the internal politics of bands plus, you know, usually secret romance, um, which is always fun. And this one is coming out in about a week. It's called Dark Hearts by James L. Sutter. And in this case, it's a, a young man who was part of the band before they got famous, and then he quit the band. Uh-oh. And then they went on to become superstars, and he was left behind. And he's mostly okay with that. It's not something he's super worried about in his daily life. Um, But then, um, unfortunately, one of the band members, um, there's a trio. One of them dies, and it brings them back together to talk to each other. And the other young man, Chance, is debating, do I do a solo career? Do I become something else? And the two of them reconnect and discover, one, that they're still unresolved feelings because of all of the kind of fallout from the band breakup and how they both saw that but also a potential romance, but it's secret because of pop stardom. Mm. Um, And the other thing I really liked about this particular book is that the main character is not your typical boy band person. He's a little bit bigger, not a kind of svelte, beautiful young man. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's also um, someone who's interested in becoming a carpenter. So it's the idea of showing a trade as something that you can do successfully, um, which is pretty rare in teen books. Mm-hmm. Um, but mainly, you know, there's the classic sort of how do you express yourself? How do you write the perfect song? But also deal with all these feelings. Um, and I think it's very funny and very sweet. And, you know, you kind of spend the entire book waiting for the declaration on stage that you know must be coming. But it's it's very lovely and very satisfying. All right. Very good. Susanna, what's your next pick? Okay, I'll continue with the romance trend. I was going to save it for later, but mine is That Summer Feeling by Bridget Morrissey. This is releasing May 30th, and it is a queer romance set at a summer camp for adults, which immediately sold me. Um, Garland and her sister, Dara, made a pact when they were kids by exchanging these homemade bracelets to never settle for the complacent marriage that's modeled by their parents. But when Garland, now in her 30s, faces divorce after two years of marriage to a man, she loses her faith in happy endings and just generally feels stagnant. Uh, So when the sisters make friends with two brothers who run a summer camp, one week of which is reserved for grown-ups only, Garland and Dara jump at this opportunity to to escape their lives and pretend to be kids again. Um, And Camp Carl Cove, as the camp is called, is nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Georgia. It has all the staples of an American summer camp. It has ropes, courses, a mess hall, arts and crafts. Um, But the campers, on the other hand, are less conventional. They range from 30-something up to baby boomers, and they represent a whole gamut of identities. It's sort of a queer haven for a lot of people. And when Garland runs into Mason, a tall, strapping man, 
who she once encountered at an airport years earlier and had this premonition about. She sort of fixates on him as her soulmate and pursues him. Uh, but she also strikes up a friendship with Mason's sister, Stevie. And over time, Garland's allegiance begins to stray to Stevie. And Garland has a sort of queer coming of age in her 30s um, and explores her identity through her relationship with Stevie. Uh, so this is a romance novel, yes, but it's also this honest coming out story for a queer person in their 30s. Uh, it's also about finding community and the bond of sisterhood between Garland and Dara. And because it's set in a summer camp, it's also just a really fun summer romp and a reminder that grown-ups can still have fun and still learn new things about themselves. Okay. I'm going to, uh, Veronica, ask you to let's switch genres. We can come back to romance because I love it. But, um, sure. you know, I'm sure some of our listeners would like some other choices. So let's go, let's go someplace else. <laughs> all right. I will. How about historical fantasy? We all like historical all right. fantasy. Um, this is another uh, August release, um, but I, I really loved it. Um, the Water Outlaws by mm. S.L. Huang. Um, which is a gender bent remix of Water Margin, which, to be honest, I have not read, but um, is one of the four great classics of Chinese literature. Um, and from from what I from what I have un- researched about Water Margin, it's um, it's a kind of Robin Hood story. It's about a band of outlaws who are fighting against governmental corruption. Um, and S.L. Huang takes that story and is talking about. Um, well, what what does what happens in the story if some of these characters are women, if they're fighting against, um, you know, like the particular oppressions that that they're encountering? And I thought the protagonist, who's an army trainer mm-hmm. named Lin Chong, um, and is is someone who's done everything exactly right, mm-hmm. like all her life. She's middle aged. She's successful, but she's always been successful by not standing out too much. Um, someone who, and I, I think. You know, as as a woman, you kind of start to see this happening um, around you. You're like, well, I'm I'm safe. Like I've done it. I'm here. I'm safe because I've done everything right. And you know, you see things happen to to other women around you, and you're like, well, they must they must have done something wrong. Um, and then, you know, the the story opens with the the catastrophic thing happening to her, and she's done nothing wrong, and yet she is. You know, she's kicked out of the army. She's beaten. She's exiled. She's only spared from like execution because one of her women friends who she thinks, you know, like she's, she's great, but she doesn't do everything right. Like really goes to bat for her. Um, And so like the kind of opening up of the world of her realizing, you know, the, the system around you is not, is not keeping you safe. And so her finding sisterhood um, among the bandits, I thought was like a really, a really beautiful, um, compelling story. Okay. Very good. Robin, new genre. So I will go to something that I always loved as a teen, which is um, fantasy. Mm-hmm. But specifically, I love worlds where authors play together, where they decide to create their own world and then everyone writes their own story in that world. Mm-hmm. So this is a book that's coming out also in June mm-hmm. called The Grimoire of Grave Fates by Hannah Alcuff and Margaret Owen. And it's got a kind of classic setup in that it's a prestigious magical school and we all know how those work where yeah. everyone gets to go and show off their talents and or feel uh, less than great at their at the chosen kind of field 
Um, but this one is a reinvention of the school in that they've decided to open up the school to more people and to be more inclusive. But that isn't settling well with everyone who's there. Um, and it also combines into a murder mystery, which is my other favorite. <laughs> so um, a, a kind of less than popular professor gets murdered and then all of the students decide they're the ones to figure out what happened. Um, but it's a whole an array of young adult authors who are very popular and very well done um, kind of fantasists who like to create all these worlds. And they each tell a different story of a different student. And I love that kind of world building. I think it's just a lot of fun. And every author brings something different to each story. Um, so I think for a lot of kids, that'll be really fun. But it's some of the more like Darcy Little Badger and Mason Deaver and Cat Cho and um, Julian Winters, all these different authors that are bringing something to the table. And that's always a great fun to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious from each of you, uh, before we go to your next pick, Susanna, uh, when you get ready to sort of curate your list for the summer, you know, what catches your eye or what are you looking for? that you are thinking about as you start to say, yep, yep, this should go on the list? Yeah, I'll start. Um, I think I'm just looking for a range of books that will resonate with a range of experiences in my readers. So I try to choose, you know, a racially diverse set of titles, um, as well as various genres and formats. I have a graphic uh, novel on here. So I'm really just trying to hit as many interest points as I can while also um, having them be interesting to me. Uh, Veronica? I agree. You know, like I, I try to make sure that it's it's a range of different kinds of books. Um, that's I think it's very easy for a, one reader to kind of get siloed into a particular genre. So I'm when I when I'm creating this list, I'm definitely looking for different kinds of books and me and also sometimes books that, you know, I I can see that. Well, you know, I can't predict the future, but I think that this is going to be one of the one of the big books to look ahead to in the summer. Um, and then also just books that I personally loved reading. Sometimes mm-hmm. you got to champion a book that, you know, I don't think that this is going to, you know, be a number one time New York Times bestseller, but I, I thought that it was really good and I can I can hopefully share my love um, with other people. Mm. And Robin? I think I'm usually driven most by looking for um, main characters that will resonate with the range of teens that I see. They tend to look that way. They look for either characters that are like them or not like them, but they're always looking for characters. That's that's the focus is who's the main character. Is it something that I can get into in that way that I can relate somehow to this character, whether it's to hate them or to love them? Um, so I think that's the most important thing that I look for. But I, I definitely have that same. You want a huge range of genre and type of book, memoir, graphic novel, everything we can think of. Okay. Susanna, your next pick then. Yeah, I'll pivot to the genre of family saga, which is one of my favorites. And this one is Family Lore by Elizabeth Acevedo, whose name you might know um, as being an author of multiple books for kids and teens, including The Poet X, which won the National Book Award for Young People in 2018. And this is her first venture into adult fiction, and I think will make a big splash this summer. It comes out August 1st. Um, A review I read recently compared Acevedo to Gabriel Garcia Marquez because of her gift for telling a family saga, and I have to agree with that assessment. Um, Family lore weaves the lives of four Dominican-American women in their 60s and 70s when we meet them. Three of the sisters are are believed to possess magic gifts. One is believed to be ungifted. Um, Matilde has no known gift, but as the eldest sister, she's sort of the rock of their family. Um, Pastora can read people's truths 
Camila has a gift for herbalism and healing. And finally, Floor can predict almost exactly when a person will die. So when Floor calls on her family to throw her a living wake before she dies, um, her sisters are understandably surprised and concerned that Floor's death is imminent, but Floor won't come forward and say that she's dying. She just wants to have a wake to celebrate her life. Um, and the book spans the days leading up to Floor's wake and cycles between the perspectives of the four sisters and some of their daughters, uh, one of whom, Ona, is the omniscient narrator of the book and sort of interjects with her own personal asides and anecdotes, which are often very funny. Um, and as we hear from each family member, we get this wider lens view of the family's history and flashbacks blend into the present, dredged up family stories are shared from various perspectives. Um, so as the title suggests, Family Lore, the book is about how a family's shared stories live on through this game of telephone that is oral tradition. Um, and it's also very funny. It's filled with Spanglish dialogue, so you don't need to know Spanish really to understand it. And just sort of like the snappy repartee that only can occur between family members. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Veronica? All right. I'm going to go in an unusual direction for me, um, but I'm going to recommend Quietly Hostile by... It's Samantha. on my list. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I'm dying to read it. You continue to describe it. All right. It. I will I'll describe it without too many spoilers, but honestly, I feel like you can't really spoil it. It's it's a memoir and essays um, by Samantha Irby. This is her fourth one. I'm not normally a big memoir reader, but I thought this one was so relatable, specifically um, for millennials. Um, like it's just that that kind of transition of life that I think a lot of us are going through right now that you know, you're not, you're not young anymore. And, you know, your body is starting to break down a little <laughs> bit. Um, and you're seeing all of your friends go through these life changes. Ob some of it obviously is not as relatable. I am not a writer on the reboot of Sex in the City. Um, <laughs> I have not had these experiences with pitching a television show. Um, but, you know, the, the just kind of self-deprecating humor, I think a, a lot of I think everybody could enjoy, but especially millennials will really appreciate. I'd been hearing about her and hearing about her and had not picked up her other books. One of them is named Wow, No Thank You. And the other one is named uh, We Are Never Ever Meeting in Real Life. So people can get a sense of her attitude. So I thought quietly hostile. I got to read that. <laughs> it's right, right in my vibe. <laughs> All right, Robin. <laughs> um, well, I'll go with another memoir. It's a graphic novel called Family Style by Tin Pham. And it is one that I've actually been looking forward to for years. I've been hearing about it. And it's um, something that he first published on Instagram. Um, and it is a memoir of being a refugee from Vietnam and ending up in Thailand first and then in California. And the kind of, in some ways, what we expect from that narrative of trying to figure out how to establish yourself, his parents being very determined, but also, you know, what opportunities do you have? Um, and also his growing up and slowly leaving that culture behind, forgetting the things he knew as a child and trying to reconnect with his own past. Um, but what I love about it is that each instance of the book, each chapter is done through taste. It's through a food that he remembers. Um, so it starts with things like watermelon and a rice ball that he remembers on the boat, on the refugee boat. Um, but then Later on, things that you would think of as very classically American, steak and potatoes or potato chips. Um, but they're driven in a way that's very sensory based and very full of memory. And that's really a lovely way to tell the story. 
Um, and he's one of those creators I've watched for a long time, and I'm just really glad he finally kind of um, got to the point of creating an entire book in comics. Um, and I think it's really relatable for a lot of kids who've been through that process, but also um, just really compelling as a way to learn about what that experience was like, both from as a very young child, he was about five, all the way through being an adult and wanting to become um, naturalized as a citizen. Wow, that sounds great. Susanna, you're next. Yeah, I have a graphic novel on my list. It is Mimosa by Archie Bongiovanni. And it came out in March, but I'm just getting into it now. And the author uh, was the author of the graphic nonfiction book a while ago, A Quick and Easy Guide to They, Them Pronouns, which is on the list of the long list of books now to have been challenged in the past year. So I do want to shine a light on their new graphic novel uh, because it deserves extra attention and to be raised. Um, Mimosa tells the story of four best friends who are also each other's chosen family, Chris, Elise, Joe, and Alex, who met while waiting tables at the same restaurant. Uh, now they're in their 30s, struggling through various life changes, like raising children, dating, exploring their gender identities now that they have the language to do so, uh, struggling for financial stability, the list goes on. Um, so the friends decide to band together to put on a new queer social event for queer people over the age of 30. And we watch as these friends collaborate to create this amazing space for themselves and their local community, while also struggling with balancing their day-to-day -day lives and being there for their friends in times of need. Um, and sort of the thesis of this book is that the messiness of life does not magically disappear when your 20s are, are, are over, was sort of relevant to the Samantha Irby book we were just talking about, um, and that we are all constantly reinventing ourselves and growing as people. Um, I would recommend this to anybody who likes Alison Bechdel, the author of Fun Home. The illustrations are sort of similar, like these simple line drawings and just a few muted colors with lots of detailed scenes from everyday life and really great facial expressions and dialogue. So back to you, Veronica, next pick. All right, I am going to go with historical fiction this time. Um, and this is um, the my first time reading this author, but I, you know, she's obviously got a, a very long backlist that you know people people are probably aware of. Um, Lady Tan's Circle of Women by Lisa C. Um, this I thought it was a really you know, like the the plot of the book is um, you know like the progression of one woman's life um, from her childhood. This is an upper class woman in late 14th century, the early 15th century China, um, which um, is is a time period where upper class women had their feet bound, um, and so that's a, a very large part of her of the main character's life. Um, but she she is an upper class woman. She's very educated and she's been very privileged because after her mother died, um, she was taken in by her grandparents and her grandparents um, decided to have her educated as a doctor. Um, so she's, she's moving through life um, with these, you know, like very large contrasts in having a lot of freedom in some respects and very little freedom in, in others. Um, but the other major constant in her life is that um, her her grandmother had her um, arranged into this uh, like an arranged friendship with the daughter of the local midwife, um, and so while the the heroine whose name is Tan Yunxian I didn't say that um, as as she goes through life you know becoming getting married being a noble a noble woman who is then confined to her husband's house. Um, 
she's she's still experiencing what what life is like outside the house through her best friend. Um, I think, you know, it's all of historical fiction obviously is looking at like a past a past event through the lens of what we contemporarily think, right? Um, and I thought it was a very interestingly non-judgmental way to view specifically the act of foot binding mm-hmm. um, because it, the book is very realistic. Her, her mother dies of an infection from the foot binding. Um, like her, her literal ability to walk distances is limited. Um, and yet she, she is able to see the act of foot binding as, you know, like a, an aspirational thing that has raised her status as a, a sign of her mother's love that she was able to give her this opportunity um, and I, I, you know, it's, it's a lot to process. You, you think the, the book is very, very clear about, you know, some of the frankly grosser aspects of mm-hmm. what, what foot binding would entail, but also to, to think about what, what did this act mean to women in that time period? Mm-hmm. It was again, a, a very compelling story. And this is another one that I read in two days. I was like, I need to know what happens next. Yes. Well, Lisa C. has great reputation for really taking that historical fiction to a new yeah. place. So. I, I, I should also say she has a, a great afterword where she talks about all the historical research and the sources she used, and which I really appreciate. You're like, okay, this is, this is That's where... That's helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Robin. I'm going to shift to space opera, which is one of my favorites. Um, I love kind of I'm I'm always a fan of heist stories. Um, anything that involves heist or cons but will always kind of get me into the book. Um, but this one I like. It's called A Song of Salvation by Alicia Dow. And um, as an author, she's someone who, one, I appreciate because she always centers um, black and fat protagonists, which is a thing that is less, you know, present in YA. Um, and it's just generally about kind of making sure that she's creating books that are um, full of body diversity and also just diversity in general. But um, this one is a lot of fun. It's a a character who is one of the last of her kind and is considered a reincarnation of a god. Um, So she's got this huge destiny that she's supposed to fulfill, but is not particularly interested in that Um, and ends up having to team up with uh, a smuggler uh, who also really doesn't want to be involved in some sort of epic plot. Um, And they team up and end up uh, with a trio of people trying to kind of deal with the fact that they've just been caught up in interstellar, you know, politics and drama. Um, So it's my kind of story in that way. I I love kind of smart science fiction that does a lot of internal politics and action. But it's also just nice to see a book that's um, shifting who's the star of that story. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. But coming up, there is no shortage of exciting choices from the latest books to hit library shelves and Kindle downloads. We're continuing our hour-long summer reading special, more of our conversation next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're using the full hour for our annual summer reading special. In studio with me, Robin Brenner, teen librarian at the Public Library of Brookline. Welcome back, Robin. 
Thanks again. <laughs> Veronica cohen Madison, Reader Services Librarian at the Boston Public Library. Hi, Veronica. Always a pleasure. And not in studio with me, but remotely, Susanna Boristan Tukach, Senior Librarian at the Cambridge Public Library. Hello, Susanna. Hello. <laughs> we're glad to have you too. All right, we're going to continue. Uh, all three of you are here with your curated list of great picks for summer reading, all genres. We've had science fiction, we've had um, his uh, fantasy, uh, we've had romance, um, we've had essays. And there's much, much more. So I will start um, with you, Veronica, this time. Um, what's your next pick? All right. I'm going to circle back and do more romance because this is <laughs> one of my one of my very favorites. Um, the Secret Lives of Country Gentlemen by K.J. Charles. I, f- I feel like the, the, the plot is complicated, but at, at the core, um, we have a gentleman named Gareth who... Um, his father discarded him as a child and sent him off to live with an uncle who didn't like him very much. And so he's lived his whole life estranged from his father. And then he suddenly finds out that his father has died. And rather than do anything with his own will, his father has just left him, the only male child, everything, and effectively disinherited his daughter. Um, Wow. Yeah. That's a twist. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, and so he he has to go and and meet his meet his um, his stepsister who he's never met in life um, and the woman who's been taking care of the house. And he, you know, figures out that, in fact, like his father wasn't just awful to him. His father was horrible to the women who lived with him also um, and kind of like starting to like really find a family in his in his new estate in Kent. I just it's such a it's such a warm story about, you know, realizing that, you know, the people around you are in fact kind and you can you can be part of a family even if it wasn't the one you were born into. She's 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 doing the work. It's it's really fascinating and the Kentish slang is is really <laughs> Well it sounds like Bridgerton fans might yes, might I, be attracted to I this. I think book. so. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Robin? Well, I was going to mention that um, a lot of adults read young adult, and young adults honestly read up to adult, depending on how old they are. Um, And one of the things we've noticed a lot more happening is more adult authors writing for young adults. And it's actually coming from romance. There's more romance authors doing that, which is interesting. Um, And it's kind of how do you make uh, someone who's used to writing uh, you know, romance that can't be that explicit, so you're going to shift down for young adult. And the one that uh, has been very popular and appealing to a lot of teens that's um, uh, highly suspicious and unfairly cute by Talia Hibbert, um, (laughs) who's known for the Brown Sisters books um, for adults. And it was just one of those stories where it's it's in many ways a classic sort of enemies to lovers trope. Um, You have a very um, handsome and upstanding sports star, you know, who um, is kind of perfect in all ways, except that he also has a best friend who he's fallen out with who is her own person and is uninterested in him, except that they get thrown together on a survival course and have to work with each other again and then rediscover maybe why they liked each other. Um, but it's also very fun because it's very funny. Um, and I always love humor in romance and, and the more you know witty banter, the better. But also um, something I've noticed that's also true in romance in general, but also in young adult is uh, addressing mental health very well within the context of romance. So, um, the main romantic lead has OCD and anxiety, and that mm-hmm. becomes part of the story and how you, ne- you kind of negotiate relationships. But 
that's just handled really well. And that's yeah. something that's more and more become a part of how people discuss relationships and dealing with people. Um, so it's just a lot of fun. And I'm really glad to see one that did translate well, because to be honest, a lot of adult authors don't understand how to write young adult. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's really nice to see. The only thing that we find troubling as, as librarians is that the covers are almost exactly the same. So you can't tell which book is a oh. young adult and which book is an adult book. So there's been multiple times where we've like ordered a book for a young adult and I've been like, oh, wait, that's for adult or the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, just because it doesn't quite explain, you know, visibly, which is which. Um, this gives me an opportunity to allow you to say again that romance is not what people think of it as. You should maybe have caught that by the plots and the storylines and the writing you all have talked about when you've discussed your romance picks um, for the for your for this summer list. But usually the stories are not, oh, I like him or her, and she likes me or her. And that's it. There's so many layers to the story. I mean, it's about real life circumstances, and that those are contemporary romance stories. Mm -hmm. So I just want you to to uh, underscore that, you know, for folks who are a little reluctant, thinking it's going to be goo goo eyes the whole thing, <laughs> and it's not. All right, uh, let's go back to Susanna. Yeah, my next book is Glassworks by Olivia Wolfgang Smith, which came out May 16th, and hasn't really made as much of a splash as I want it to, so I'm bringing it here. Um, and I love a multi-generational novel like Pachinko and Homegoing, so I was not surprised that I was hooked by the premise of Glassworks. I was surprised that I'm interested in the subject matter so much. It is the common thread through this multi-generational novel is glassmaking, which is not the thing that mm. I know about at all. Um, just like Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow sort of introduced me to video games in a new way. This has made me interested in glass. Um, the book spans from 1910 to 2015. Um, the book opens right here in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1910, oh. where Agnes Carter, a wealthy donor to a university, which is presumably Harvard, um, hires a naturalist and glassblowing phenom from Bohemia to create a collection of glass botanical models for the university. And I sort of expect this is probably that glass botanical model exhibit that you find in the Harvard Museum of Science and Culture down the street. Um, Agnes becomes increasingly fascinated um, with the life of this man whose mental health episodes and unreliability are sort of jeopardizing his tenure at the university. And meanwhile, Agnes is struggling with her own suffocating marriage and becomes increasingly enmeshed in this glass artist's life. So we see this, this family progress through the many decades and the common thread through all of it is glass. And it sort of is a, me a metaphor for the delicate structure of the family. We see their family shatter and sort of rebuild itself over and over again. Hmm. Um, I would recommend this for people who like Rebecca Mackay's books like The Great Believers, um, which also takes place during the AIDS epidemic and also, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, it has some common bonds with that one. Okay. Veronica. All right. I'm going to pivot a little bit um, because uh, what Susanna was saying about it being a local story made me think I should do a local author. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a book of short stories um, by Kelly Link called White Cat, Black Dog. Um, and... It being, it being short stories, I can't describe a plot to you, but it is a collection of seven kind of fairy tale retellings. Mm. Um, each, each story is 
introduced by, you know, this is this is the fairy tale that is thematically connected to it. You know, there's a king, he has three sons, he sends them out on various completely ridiculous quests. Um, and the youngest son finds himself at the house of a white cat who mysteriously can talk and all of her servants are cats and they mysteriously produce um, the all the things that he needs to succeed in his quest. And then the, fin- the final part of the original fairy tale is he's supposed to bring back a bride and he says, oh, I don't really want to bring back a wife. And the white cat says, oh, you bring me. Um, and he has to he has to prove his faith in her by cutting off her head when she tells him Ooh. to. And then immediately a beautiful woman springs out and, you know, that's his that's the perfect woman. And obviously he's the superior, the superior son who brought back the superior bride and he gets to be the king. In the end, the white the woman who becomes the white cat turns into does not marry oh. the son. She marries the father. Um and send, and then and then you know you know some time goes by and the son goes back to run her 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 castle as a marijuana farm in Colorado. Um, okay, there's a lot going on there's, here. There's a lot going on here. And then uh, mysteriously, uh, the father dies. And you know, I'm reading this story, all of all of these stories. I'm reading along, and the prose is so beautiful. And like every last one of them, it twists at the end, and I'm like, "What just happened?" <laughs> um, which, which is, you know, perhaps unsurprising. Kelly Link is a MacArthur Fellow for mm. her for her short fiction. She's um, considered one of one of the great masters currently living. Those are the um, genius fellowships. The that genius fellowships. Don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, you know, every time I would be like, oh, okay, it's a fairy tale retelling. I know what's happening. I did not know what was happening. I was, I was wrong. <laughs> so I, if you, if you enjoy being surprised by stories as well as, as well as just, you know, really enjoying the beautiful prose that's carrying you through, I really recommend, like, I was, I was shocked many times. <laughs> okay. That sounds intriguing, at least. Robin? I'm going to talk about another graphic novel um, called Malcolm Kidd and the Perfect Song by Austin Paramore and Sally Bollinger. Um, And this is one I really liked, partly because one of the things I always look out for is to make sure we have titles for younger teens. I think a lot of people feel um, that there's a bridge there between the kind of middle grade giant fantasy tomes and things that people are used to, but then young adult can feel a little too far for some of the younger, and so the 12, 13, 14 year olds. Um, This one I really love because it plays on the idea of Making a deal with the crossroads devil for music, um, which is something I've always enjoyed as a trope, um, and certainly comes from true sort of jazz mythology and jazz history. Um, and in this case, it's a, a young man who is trying to prove that he wants to be a musician and specifically play piano, but cannot afford his own keyboard and is kind of desperate to prove to his dad, who's very disapproving of the idea of this as a career. Um, And he reconnects with an old friend from the neighborhood and um, ends up, you know, making a deal that he doesn't realize he's making with this very shady store owner who gives him a a keyboard for free. Of course, Mm -hmm. there is a different price for it. Um, But I liked it a lot because the art is fantastic. It's very appealing and I think really suits the characters in the neighborhood. Um, There's a lot of them learning about the history of jazz in their town and where the clubs were and who was allowed to go and why and you know where um, it becomes a family story an intergenerational family story over the course of the book and I also like the fact that it ends in such a way that there may well be a sequel which would make me very happy to see Um, and these there are two new creators I, I haven't run into them before but I was really delighted with the book it's a really good one 
especially for, um, as I said, younger tweens who are looking for a kind of little bit of mystery, a little tiny bit of romance, um, but it's perfectly lovely for them. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Susanna Boristan-Tukach, Robin Brenner, and Veronica coven Madisey. In this special one-hour discussion, we're talking about books you'll want to have on your radar this summer. Now, I would be remiss if I did not uh, follow up um, and ask each of you to talk about what is the elephant in the room for librarians this year, and that's book banning. Um, we talked about it a bit last year when we had this discussion, and Veronica, you said some people thought it was only happens in Alabama, but it was happening around here. Um, uh, Susanna, you said, you know, the foundation of freedom provides books to everyone. And Robin, you said your job was to support teens in all the ways that they need. The policies are clear, but you wanted to have, you know, offer books to them that they wanted. Well, things have gotten very, very worse. More books are banned. Uh, There's a clear target on those books that are written by or have content about um, black authors and LGBTQ um, authors as well. And um, in general, there's a lot of tension now at the libraries themselves, including in Massachusetts, where there's full on you know, physical fits fights and and all kinds of other discussions as we speak. Uh, the Ludlow School Library proposal is up uh, and they're trying to decide whether, you know, they need to take some books out because they're, quote, pornographic or and others are in the group there say, well, no, this is a this is censorship. So it's a lot going on. And I just want to get you all to weigh in about how you're feeling about um, what appears to be um, going in a opposite direction from where you all thought it was going last year, Susanna. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm feeling concerned. Um, even though we're in Massachusetts, we see challenges to our collection even here in Cambridge. Uh, the good news for you in Massachusetts is that it is required by state law that Massachusetts libraries have collection policy guidelines, and these are sort of guided by the American Library Association's principles of intellectual freedom. So I would recommend you know, asking your library what policies they already have in place to uphold intellectual freedom. And if you are concerned about censorship happening in your community, you know, join your library board, contact local city officials, and just learn more about what's happening to protect the intellectual uh, rights of people in your community. Robin? I would say that it's certainly much more concerning at this point in time. Um, I've had a lot more, especially related actually to comics and graphic novels. Um, I'm part of the Graphic Novels and Comics Roundtable, and that is something we've done webinars this year on how to deal with specifically challenges to comics, because there are a lot more of them now. And I think for me, the big concern is to keep aware of what's happening in your community and especially to to kind of go and speak if you're against this, um, if you're against the banning. And there's a, a lot of a sense now that gives me hope that there are a lot more people that are paying attention, a lot more people that are banding together in order to prevent what we feel is censorship going forward and going to the school committee meetings and going to the select board meetings and all the things that you can do in your local community. And I've personally found very helpful um, Every library is a national organization that that tracks all of this and can tell you all the laws that might be coming up that will be voted on and the way that you can get involved locally to help in your own community. Um, I've spoken to our local teens in Brookline about book bans, and a lot of them, you know, even if it's not in their own community, they want to know what they can do to help, even if it's somewhere else. So um, really speaking out, speaking up publicly, being willing to talk is very important. 
Um, and at the same time, we're, you know, kind of against a very organized group. Um, so that I'm glad to see that there's a lot more organization on the other side at this point. Um, but it's still going to be, I fear, a very long fight, um, mm -hmm. but an important one. Veronica. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very scary right now. Um, and I like one thing that I think about a lot is that, you know, the, the success of these book banning campaigns is not just in, you know, in, in one particular place you get a book that this organization gets a book taken off the shelf, right? Like part of like what what these organizations are trying to do is make make librarians afraid to put a book on display in the first place. Like that quiet censorship of saying, well, you know, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to have a fight about this, I, you know, and so to just quietly, you know, withdraw it or even not withdraw it, just, you know, not put it face out, not put it where people are going to notice it. And so, you know, we, we want to keep supporting these books that show different different experiences you know suppressing a book that has an experience that's different from yours doesn't make that experience disappear it just makes people who have that different experience feel that they're not their their own life is not worthy of being in a book um which is manifestly untrue um so you know what i would say is that if you want to keep seeing you know these diverse books on library shelves you know please say that to your librarian, please say that to your local board. You know, it it means a lot to hear, you know, I noticed that you put that book out and I liked it because a lot of the time all you hear is when someone is angry, when someone says, well, how dare you put that book out there? So it it does actually mean a lot in the in the day to day to just say, you know, hey, I, I noticed this thing and I liked it. All right. Well, pick one more, each of you, and you give me a really brief description of it so they can squeeze it in at the end. Um, I'll start with you this time, Robin. Okay. Well, one that's actually very easy to recommend because it's such a fun series is um, it started with The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. And this is the fourth book, but there was a trilogy. And so this is kind of a separate story. Um, but they're enormous fun as books. They're incredibly popular. They're basically puzzle books. They're all about solving puzzles in this team of, of uh, a young woman and a, a family of brothers. And of course, there's like love triangles and all sorts of things going on. And then there's elaborate puzzles that you get to solve. Um, and in this case, it's about the two brothers that we haven't haven't been central characters before. And it's just called The Brothers Hawthorne. Um, and it's coming out at the very end of August. So it's the very end of the summer. But it's something to look forward to. It's just a really fun read. Okay. Susanna. Yeah, I'll give a quick plug for a thriller, which is a genre I don't often read. But one appealed to me. It's called Girls and Their Horses by Eliza Jane Brazier. And this is a book for fans of thrillers with an added dose of social pettiness. Think like Big Little Eyes meets Real Housewives. Um, but it takes place in the competitive world of show jumping. And I love a story that uh, occurs in the intense microcosm like elite sports. So this one really appealed to both my itch to read something suspenseful and also to see like the dark underbelly of a sport. Sounds good. All right, Veronica, last one. All right, this is not a book that needs a, a boost, but I'm going to boost it anyway. Um, Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang. Mm, um, it's on my list. Oh. <laughs> All right, I should I should have picked something different. Um, so I in in full honesty, I haven't read this one yet. Mm -hmm. This is one that I'm looking forward to. I read um, Babel by R.F. Kuang recently, and I was like, oh wow, wow. Um, so I've I've been constantly amazed by how R.F. Kuang can just pivot to something different. So this is a 
literary thriller parody kind of um, in which a, you know, like kind of mediocre author um, who's is friends with a much more successful Asian-American author. Um, and when her friend dies unexpectedly, she steals her deceased friend's manuscript and passes it off as her own. Um, and I have been just fascinated to see the reception of this book, right? Because this is this is a book that is about the publishing agent industry, you know, it's, <laughs> and yet, you know, it's, it's, it's already massively successful. Um, and it's, it is clearly a book that this publisher has put their full weight behind. You know, this is something that is, it is getting the advertisements, it's getting the book tour. And I'm, I'm sitting here going like, you guys know this is about you, right? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so it is, I, you know, I, I am so excited to see this, this book on shelves and, you know, it's already got a crazy long wait list. So if you want this book, you better put yourself in line now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's a great way to end this conversation. Um, I will remind our listeners that we each month have a bookmarked segment, the Under the Radar uh, Book Club. And one more thing from me, I just heard about a book called A Library by Nikki Giovanni, um, the poet, and it's about you guys, a tribute to librarians. And it's a picture book for all ages. So that's my gift to you that you all should read that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I look forward for us gathering around again next summer for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Susanna Boristan Tukach is the senior librarian at the Cambridge Public Library. Robin Brenner is the teen librarian at the Public Library of Brookline. And Veronica Coven Mattesy is a reader services librarian at the Boston Public Library. All of their recommended book lists, as I've said, and mine, will be posted on the Under the Radar social media. That's it for our 2023 one-hour summer reading special for Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.